millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, April 2nd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... We are now at the point in Mississippi's cycle uh, where such drastic measures may be required. Today is the day. The governor issues a statewide shelter-in-place order. And leaders on the Mississippi Gulf Coast express concerns about the infection rate at the na- in neighboring Louisiana. Then, in today's book club, Furious Hours, the story of a book Harper Lee never wrote. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is joining over 30 other states in the nation, issuing statewide shelter-in-place orders. At a press conference yesterday, Governor Tate Reeves announced the measure, saying after weeks of consulting medical experts, the time to act is now. Every day for the last several weeks, we have met with our health experts, we've had conversations, and ultimately we have asked and discussed when is the right time to do various things. In other words, when is the right time, or is it ever going to be the right time, to issue stay-at-home orders, shelter-in-place orders, either for local jurisdictions or for the state as a whole? Late yesterday afternoon and into the evening, as data be- more and more data began to arrive, it became clear uh, in talking to our experts that that time was near. They told me that we are now at the point in Mississippi's cycle uh, where such drastic measures may be required. Today is the day. We are announcing a shelter-in-place order. It will go into effect Friday at 5 p.m. Our goal in the short term is to prevent our health care system from being overwhelmed. I pray that all of our orders and our preparations will be enough. We believe that this is the right tool at the right time to save lives. Today, this is the best course of action for Mississippi. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs joined Governor Reeves at the podium. He says there's a growing concern over community transmission in vulnerable communities. One of the things that's become most worrisome is we've seen an expansion in the number of cases in nursing homes. So we're seeing at this point enough volume of cases where it's starting to infiltrate into a more vulnerable population. If we think about what the purpose of a shelter-in-place order is, it's to slow things down to give the system an opportunity to get extra capacity to deal with the increased demand. 
And part of that's going to be the healthcare system. If we think about our ICUs, we have adequate ICU beds right now. If we think about ventilators, we have adequate ventilators uh, not in use in hospitals right now. But we know more cases are coming. We know that we're going to have more deaths. We really are still at the front of this thing. But if we can use this tool to slow things down such that we can process patients through the system safely and provide every single patient the resources they need to maximize a chance for recovery, that's what we're doing. And this isn't going to be a cure. It's not going to stop the coronavirus. But what it will do is it'll cause an additional pause. The social distancing measures have been useful, but this additional measure will be that much more useful to slow it down so that we can not only make sure the health system has the capacity to deal with the patients that are coming through, but also for us to be more aggressive in our offensive strategy, tracking, identifying, isolating, quarantining all appropriate individuals to contain it from a microscopic environment. Dr. Thomas Dobbs is the state health officer of Mississippi. Access to personal protective equipment or PPE and other vital medical supplies like ventilators is also creating distress nationwide. Executive director of the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency, Greg Michelle, says his agency is working to get those supplies available. One of the things uh, that has been one of the one of the more challenging issues with the COVID response has been, of course, uh, getting the appropriate supplies in that we need for, uh, first of all, our healthcare workers, healthcare providers, healthcare facilities, and then our tier threes, where our first responders, emergency responders. We've been working. This is not an issue just for Mississippi. This is an issue that's been uh, global. It's an issue that's been nationally at all states been working with. But we've been working uh, with great success and starting to get supplies in. It's taken a little longer to do that. As everyone knows, we've talked with a number of uh, healthcare facilities and uh, hospitals about those supplies, and we certainly understand their concerns. But I can assure you that those resources are coming in. And as we sat over there earlier, we're getting notifications of supplies coming in. Governor Reeves also addressed the difficulties and fear associated with the coronavirus pandemic and the extreme measures needed to combat it. This will not be easy for anyone, but we believe it is the right course of action. We know that there are many people across our state who are scared, wondering what this means for themselves, for their family members, and what this means for their wages and their ability to put food on the table. We are here for you and working hard to help. Mississippi will not allow you to fall without a helping hand. We know that there are some who still do not have a healthy fear of this virus. They are wrong, and they are risking lives if they do not take this very, very seriously. While they may not be risking their own lives, they certainly are risking the lives of their moms, their grandmoms, their dads, their granddads. This order will be enforced. It will be taken very, very seriously. It will not be forever. We will get through this and open our state back up as soon as possible and as soon as our health experts tell me it is wise to do so. The shelter-in-place order goes into effect Friday, April 3rd. That's tomorrow. It does not restrict travel to and activity at grocery stores, pharmacies, or delivery and curbside food food service. It does place stricter guidelines on what is considered essential work and services. House Speaker Philip Gunn and Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman also issued public statements of support for the order. 
To stay current on the latest developments concerning the coronavirus in Mississippi, visit mpbonline.org slash coronavirus. Next, with shelter in place now statewide, some tips on maintaining work productivity. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Many Mississippians are working from home as a result of social distancing measures, and that's expected to linger well into spring with the governor's shelter-in-place order and continued precautions. Dr. Molly Clark is a psychologist with the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She shares some advice on maintaining work productivity while sheltered at home. So there is the physical boundary. Um, There's no longer a commute. Um, You have some decreased time that you would normally spend with your colleagues and there are some things related to physical distance that you know change as a result of working at home there are different boundaries related to time and when you spend time working and then there are also the the psychological boundaries uh, that we have. You know, we typically think of home as being our place to disconnect from work, and now we're bringing our work into our home. And so, depending on uh, someone's personality and how they cope, uh, it may be very good for them to create a structure and to have structures related to those different domains. And there may be children at home or pets at home that might interfere? So is it important to find a private space to work from? You know, it it can be depending upon the nature of your work and the flexibility that you have. But if you feel like you're going to have a conference call or something of that nature and you need that, that space, it is important to really create those boundaries and, and to have that space available, uh, so that you feel like you are giving your 100% even though you're at home. And so I, you know, I think it's beneficial if you have a dedicated space, especially because again, when we, when we think about home, we think about that being, you know, our place to disconnect from work. So to be able to kind of psychologically have that space available to where you are dealing with work in that area and then you can kind of come out and then engage in your everyday home and, and family life, that may be psychologically important. Is there any data that talks about productivity at home as opposed to productivity at the workplace? There is. You know, the the data uh, related to work from home or telework has, you know, been in, in the making for over 30 years now. And so while this seems new to us now that we're entering into this time where more people are working from home as a result of uh, COVID, we are seeing, though, that all of the things in the literature apply. So people are still productive. They, they still can be productive, but they're are some associated challenges and benefits from from working from home. Is it important that someone maintain an eight to five schedule with an hour break for lunch or doesn't that matter so much? You know, I think what would be, you know, and what the data tells us is, is that the more you can set a goal for the day, 
you know, whatever it may be, you know, related to your work, whether you set goals, you prioritize, and you plan your task, that that may be a better approach than than to think about this from the 8 to 5 schedule. Now, it may be a little bit different depending upon the type of work that you do, but if you have, the, I mean, that's the benefit of telework is, is is that you are able to flex those hours around times that you would um, you would normally be at home, or you know, and you can you can maximize that um, to where it benefits you. What about clothing? Is it important to get dressed in the morning? Does that set you up for your work day, or can you work in your pajamas and be just as productive? <laughs> You know, I, I think that that is going to be, uh, you know, and what the literature tells us is is, is that this is going to be personality dependent. And so for you, if it's important to have that structure and that structure leads you to be more productive, then yes, I think it's important to really um, to, to make those things like you would normally do, get up, take a shower, get ready, you know, and get dressed. Do you have to go in a, you know, do you have to dress up in your three-piece suit or, you know, a very, you know, professional uh, garb, if you will? Uh, not necessarily, but to be able to kind of, again, set, have that psychological boundary that this is work. Dr. Molly Clark is a psychologist with the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thank you so much for some very good advice. Thank you. Coming up, leaders on the Mississippi Gulf Coast express concerns about the infection rate in neighboring Louisiana. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. The state of Louisiana is reporting more than 6,000 positive cases of the coronavirus. Yesterday, cases in the state spiked by more than 20% in 24 hours. Experts are calling it the new hotspot. As MPB's Ashley Norwood reports, leaders on the Mississippi Gulf Coast are particularly concerned about the infection rate in the neighboring state and its proximity to their communities. Mississippi Gulf Coast Senator Philip Moran says he's noticing more cars with Louisiana tags around town and parked near beaches. The Republican legislator from Kill represents parts of Harrison County and Hancock County, which borders Louisiana. We're getting reports that people are coming over and getting their prescriptions at the drugstores here, coming in the Walmarts, going to the gas pumps, all of these sorts of things, and then intermingling with all the locals here. And we're afraid that our coronavirus outbreaks will increase tremendously. So, you know, what we're asking is for the next few weeks, everybody just kind of stay home, stay in your your prospective states, trust in your own county, and let's move beyond this, and then we can all get back to our normal lives. About 35% of all coronavirus cases in Louisiana are found in the Orleans Parish, according to the Louisiana Department of Health. Moran says concern over infection rates in New Orleans is why he joined five other coastal senators in signing a letter to Republican Governor Tate Reeves Tuesday. The two-page letter urged the governor to immediately close all coastal beaches, public and private, 
private to all non-residents. Wednesday, Reeves issued a shelter-in-place order statewide, which includes the closing of all beaches and non-essential businesses April 3rd until at least April 20th. At a press conference in Jackson this week, Reeves had this message for Louisiana residents coming into the state. We expect our neighbors in Louisiana who travel to Mississippi to adhere to our rules and our regulations. And if you're from Louisiana and you come to Mississippi, you need to stay at home. Um, You need to um, make sure that you are practicing social distancing, that you are not gathering in groups of 10 or more. Reeves says the growing number of cases and the rate of infection in Mississippi makes this the best time to issue a statewide stay-at-home order. The Mississippi Department of Health reported more than 1,000 coronavirus cases in the state as of yesterday. Of those cases, the three coastal counties combined were reporting a little over 100 cases. Democrat Mario King is mayor of Moss Point in Jackson County. He's been critical of the the governor, urging him to consider more strict precautions statewide before now. As infection rates in neighboring states continue to increase, he's concerned about non-residents overwhelming the local health care system. In Jackson County, we have 48 ICU beds, okay? 48 ICU beds. My concern is, is what happens when those hospitals are filling up? So right in Mobile, which has a large population, right in New Orleans, those individuals from Slidell, St. Thomas Parish, those people can drive right over to our hospitals and fill up our hospitals with Louisiana residents because they bring out ICUs. And we know that our numbers are starting to increase at this point in time here in Mississippi. So we need to be able to make decisions that are diligent and that are protective of our constituents just like they made policies that are protective of their constituents. For some, the governor's decision to issue a statewide shelter in place was necessary and a long time coming. In neighboring Louisiana, Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards ordered a statewide shutdown earlier this week and Alabama Republican Governor Kay Ivey closed beaches weeks ago. State and local officials realized shutting down the state and Gulf Coast beaches may be disruptive to lives, but they believe the only way to slow down the spread of the coronavirus is if every Mississippian and those commuting between states does their part. Ashley Norwood, MPB News. Coming up in today's book club, Furious Hours, the story of a book Harper Lee never wrote. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Palette to Palette with Robert St. John and Wyatt Waters. Dude, season five. They've given us five seasons Good of Lord. a TV show. We didn't even know we'd be do one season, and now we've done a fifth season. And now we're in Rome, the Amalfi Coast, oh Puglia. Gosh. We're neither here nor there. Yeah, yeah. This is going to be great. We're still learning about Italy. It's great to watch people experience this. Thursday at 7.30 on MPB Television. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A true crime story of a serial killer in 1970s Alabama drew the attention of one of America's most notable writers. Harper Lee, author of To Kill a Mockingbird, spent a year in the town in which Reverend Willie Maxwell was accused of murdering five of his family members. He was assassinated by another family member, and Lee sat through his trial. Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee tells the story of the book Harper Lee Never Wrote. Author Casey Sepp. 
She was the daughter of a lawyer. One of her older sisters was a lawyer. Now, they didn't practice much criminal law, but she was absolutely fascinated by crime and liked to go sit in on trials in the local courthouse. One of her older sisters had lived through the Leopold and Loeb case and followed that uh, with absolute attention. And Lee herself loved Sherlock Holmes. She read true detective stories as a kid. That what led her to go with Capote to Kansas was a pre-existing interest in crime, and she continued to read true crime books her whole life. Uh, she followed her nose not only as a writer, but as a reader as well. Tell us a little about this case that she followed. It's a really interesting story. So she came into the picture in 1977 when rural minister in Alexander City, Alabama, was gunned down at the funeral of his stepdaughter. Now, that would have been newsworthy in its own right, but he was gunned down at that funeral by another relative of the young girls who believed, in fact, that the reverend had been the one to murder her. And it was an incredible case in this part of Alabama. People had been following it for years because, in fact, that stepdaughter was only the fifth of the reverend's relatives to turn up dead under suspicious circumstances. He had life insurance policies on all of them. So the motive was clear to the folks around Lake Martin that he was killing these family members for the insurance money. And when the police couldn't stop him and when they couldn't hold him responsible for these crimes or convict him of murder, another one of the girl's relatives gunned him down. So Harper Lee came to town in 1977. She arrived and covered the trial of the vigilante who murdered the reverend and got to know law enforcement officers and lawyers and coroners and folks who had been involved in the story from 1970 until 1977 when she got to town. How much time did she spend researching this case? Yeah, it's really tricky for someone like me who's trying to put Harper Lee on a map and plot out her days on a calendar. She was exceedingly private and secretive, but as best we can tell, and some of this is from correspondence she wrote at the time, some of this is putting together a chronology of the interviews she did, because of course, for some of these folks, getting interviewed by Harper Lee was the most exciting thing that ever happened to them, so they have a very clear memory of it. And piecing together all of that evidence and and documentary evidence, it seems like she was in town for at least nine months, almost a year, and that ongoingly, um, for a decade after, she attempted to turn all of that reporting into a book. So we have letters from her to Gregory Peck in the early 80s, where four or five years into this, she's still trying to shape all of her reporting into a book. What happened to the book? Why did it never see the light of day? (laughs) The million-dollar question. So I think very straightforwardly, Harper Lee's life as a writer was complicated and difficult, and she was a perfectionist, and she struggled with a lot of projects after To Kill a Mockingbird, both getting to work on them and completing them. So there's the kind of writerly problem, and some people would call it writer's block, but she seems to have had a more complicated relationship to writing and how to do it. On top of that were what people close to her would say were emotional problems and addiction problems. She had a drinking problem that was exacerbated by her struggles with writing, and she was known to be a sort of volatile personality and prone to depression. And all of these things together made writing in general difficult for her. With regard to the Maxwell case, this true crime project, on top of those kind of general frustrations and difficulties with writing were some really specific ones about this case. And the details of the original crimes were extremely complicated and complex. There had not been any convictions. In fact, some of the deaths weren't even officially declared homicides because a cause of death could never be determined. 
And there was a lot of civil litigation around the life insurance. So Harper Lee joked with some people in town that she was struggling because the book was turning out to be a history of life insurance. So there were there were specific difficulties with this book and general difficulties with writing. Now, having said that, there are a lot of people I interviewed who are absolutely convinced she wrote the whole book and just didn't publish it. So it's a mystery on top of a mystery, both how much she actually wrote and whatever she wrote, what she decided to do about it. Do you know if Harper Lee ever followed other crimes such as this? There's no indication she took any as seriously as this. One funny story I was told was Harper Lee had two older sisters, and one lived in Monroeville and one lived over in Eufaula. And the sister in Eufaula was actually following a case not unlike the Reverend Maxwell. So it was a local minister accused of killing two of his wives, not at the same time, obviously, but in succession. And she followed that and reported on it to Harper Lee, but there doesn't seem to be any evidence that Harper Lee ever came to town or did any interviewing. They just like to read crime coverage, and they talked about cases like this all the time, local and national stories. But again, the Maxwell case is truly significant because of the amount of time and money and resources in general she devoted to it. So there's no indication that she ever undertook another writing project like this, even though she followed a lot of criminal stories her whole life long. This book is called Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. We've been speaking with its author, Casey Sepp. Thank you, Casey. Of course. Thanks so much. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.